brothers and sisters of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Old Testament is full of wars and battles. And the ones that come quickest to mind are the resounding victories. Even the kids can list them off. Jericho, Samson with his jawbone of a donkey, David and his sling. They're exciting stories. And even though we don't take up a sword today, we still use the same language, don't we? We're also in a battle. There's New Testament language of strapping on a sword and a helmet. And yet, how often does it feel like we're winning? Is your life characterized by resounding victories? Did you come here this afternoon brimming with confidence because you've slain demon after demon this past week? Or maybe the battle isn't going so well. Maybe that's the case for most of us. Then we find comfort in God's word this afternoon because the battle belongs to the Lord. That's our theme for our sermon. We'll see in our text a serious threat, a hilltop victory, and a glorious promise. So first we see a a serious threat. So the Israelites in our text are about a month out of Egypt. In the first part of Exodus 17, God led the Israelites to a place called Rephidim. And in spite of their grumbling and complaining for lack of water, God sent streams of water flowing from a rock. But it seems that no sooner are they filling up their water jugs and trouble rolls their way again, this time in the form of the Amalekites. The Amalekites were descendants of Esau, a desert-dwelling people going from place to place, raiding towns and villages. So perhaps at first glance, their attack makes sense. Maybe they were worried that Israel would compete for their water sources or trade routes. But actually, this isn't Amalekite territory at all. They had come far south to meet Israel, very far south. They had caught wind of this wandering people, far away from any city with little defense. In verse 9, we read that Moses tells Joshua to choose some men to fight. That doesn't mean choose the best of your army. No, there wasn't any army. All Joshua had was a large group of ex-slaves fresh out of captivity. So Amalek decided to pounce. There's a passage in Deuteronomy, though, that sharpens this picture considerably. In chapter 25, at the end of some miscellaneous laws for Israel, the Lord says this, Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. And the Lord goes on to command them to blot Amalek out. And to not forget. So now the pieces start to fall into place. You can imagine this very large group of Israelites. None of them really warriors. They've got all their supplies with them, their livestock, their children. And they're walking through a desert wasteland. And lagging behind are the weak, the sick. Maybe even groups of children. 
And after scouting things out, the Amalekites begin to pick off the stragglers, like a pack of wolves picking on easy prey. They're ruthless. It says in Deuteronomy that they had no fear of God. This isn't your run-of-the-mill battle that we see later with Israel's other enemies. No, this attack by Amalek is wicked. God's strong reaction in verse 14 and in Deuteronomy makes that clear. But the Amalekites are only mimicking their father, the father of all evil. He's the one who's really behind this attack. He knew this was God's people and that they were vulnerable. He was set on destroying them only weeks after God had brought them out of Egypt. So it's really not a surprise that we face his same tactics and relentless attacks today. The devil didn't fight fair then, and he doesn't fight fair now. He targets us too when we're weak, picking off those who are lagging behind. He's described elsewhere as a ravenous lion looking for someone to devour. The battle may be spiritual now, but that doesn't make it any less real or dangerous. Because we don't fare much better than the Israelites, do we? How frustrating it can be when we're attacked. And we do see just how weak and helpless we are. We try to prepare ourselves against temptations, anger, selfishness. But we fall so quickly when the pressure gets turned up. Why do we have to be so constantly bombarded with this stuff, we might ask? Why does it have to be like this? His attacks are constant, and our ability to resist seems so insignificant. He always seems to be ready at our weakest times to lure us into sin. But when God's people are attacked in this way, his anger is aroused. And yet, just as we see from our text, that doesn't necessarily mean God prevents these battles from happening. A few weeks earlier, God had simply led his people to a safe place and then completely demolished the Egyptian army in the Red Sea. Not so this time. Yes, this battle also belonged to the Lord. But he permitted his people to be attacked. This time, Joshua had to choose men to fight. So on one hand, we do see the Lord's protection and provision. But we also see how he tests us and purifies us by trials and hardships. This was Israel's first battle. And also the first time we hear about Joshua. So God is using this battle to prepare them for the conquest of Canaan. And he's preparing Joshua to later take over for Moses. So God has a purpose here. Also in allowing Satan the opportunity to tempt us and to attack us. But that doesn't mean that the battle doesn't belong to the Lord. It's not out of his control. The rest of our text shows us that despite Israel taking up arms, this battle is still the Lord's. And we'll see that more clearly in the second point where we observe a hilltop victory.
Although this is the Lord's battle, he finds a way to remain in the background for most of our texts. It does seem from the way that Moses speaks and acts that God has told him what to do, but we can only guess. There is one small piece of evidence, though, of God's presence in verse 9. Moses is holding the staff of God. This is the staff that brought down plagues on Egypt, parted the Red Sea, and very recently sent water gushing out of the rock at Horeb. Now as Moses climbs the hill with Aaron and Hur, we can almost anticipate that something big is about to go down. This isn't going to be an ordinary battle. And it isn't, because the focus remains almost entirely on the hilltop. Not on the exciting things going on down in the valley, but instead on Moses and his staff. It's hard to be sure exactly what Moses was doing with his hands and staff, whether he was praying or holding the staff up like a banner. But what's clear is that the outcome of the battle was not in the hands of Joshua or Moses. Because like a light switch, when Moses' hands go up, the underdog Israelites begin winning. But when his hands go down, the Amalekites prevail. This battle was in the hands of the Lord. As Moses stood there, though, watching the battle unfold below, his hands grew heavier and heavier. You might notice the emphasis that our text gives. His hands grew tired. They took a stone. They put it under him. He sat on it. Aaron and Hur held his hands up, one on one side, one on the other. There's more time spent explaining Moses' weakness in the actual battle. It's as if God wants us to be crystal clear that in this small way, Moses didn't achieve the victory. That one man still couldn't do it on his own. He was too weak. All of this points to the fact that the battle belonged to the Lord. Moses was acting here as Israel's mediator, standing between God and his people. It was Moses' actions in the middle that determined how God helped his people. But while Moses is faithful, his limitations are also obvious. We can see that even more as the weeks and years unfold. As Israel's intercessor, he wasn't even able to lead Israel into the promised land. He's a faithful but weak and insufficient mediator. In Hebrews 3, it says that Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, worthy of honor. But Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses. Moses was faithful as a servant, but Christ is faithful as a son. And as we consider our own weaknesses and vulnerability to Satan's attacks, then Christ's faithfulness is the good news we need to hear. He also was attacked at his weakest in the desert, and he prevailed. Satan left him at that point to attack him again at the cross, but he prevailed. So Christ is a mediator who knows what it means to face Satan's attacks. So he intercedes perfectly for us at the right hand of the throne of God. Not from a hilltop, 
not holding a symbolic staff, but at the right hand of the Father with all power and authority over heaven and earth. He's in God's very presence on our behalf. Who will be more readily heard than God's own well-beloved Son? In fact, he's our only access to God. He's our only mediator and advocate. No one comes to the Father except through him. And this is reason for great joy. Because he sees all our weaknesses and struggles and knows what it's like. And in the midst of our battles, he loves us and intercedes for us. It says in Hebrews 7 that Jesus always lives to intercede for us. Moses sat wearily on the rock, his heavy hands supported by his companions. But we have an advocate in heaven who has been down in the valley, one who's already been victorious. He sits beside the throne of God without weariness or weakness. And he always lives to intercede for us. Praise God that Moses was just a shadow. And yet God delighted to use this weak man in our text. Moses, Aaron, Hur, Joshua, they were all men of weakness. In verse 13, we read that Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. But we know what that means. It's the Lord that's behind this. Joshua's Hebrew name makes this very clear. The Lord saves. Yes, the battle belongs to the Lord. Whether he sends the very seas crashing down on the enemies of his people. Or he grants a hard-fought victory to his children on the battlefield. The battle belongs to the Lord. And that brings us to our final point, a glorious promise. The victory over Amalek is won for the ages. The Lord says, write it down so that you'll never forget. And make sure Joshua is listening carefully. Remember this, that I'm going to completely blot out the memory of Amalek. Well, the Lord gets his point across. This was to be a permanent record. God's act of salvation is not to be forgotten from generation to generation. And God certainly didn't forget his promise. He repeats it in Numbers and again in the passage that we read from Deuteronomy. And finally, when Israel had its first king, God told Saul that he would punish the Amalekites for that day at Rephidim. He commanded Saul to utterly wipe out the Amalekites and everything that belonged to them. Well, if you know the story, Saul didn't do the best job of that. He kept some good quality livestock for himself and he let their king, Agag, live. But God didn't even let man's sinfulness get in the way of this promise. King David finished the job defeating the Amalekites, and then they're gone. We don't hear about them again. God is faithful to his promises. And so no more does Scripture remember the Amalekites. But this story is, is bigger than the Amalekites. This battle is only an early flexing of a much larger battle that we saw earlier. A battle that began in Genesis 3. 
A war that would go on from generation to generation. A war that still seeks to destroy God's people. And we need not be surprised then by the hatred that we still face today. It's not just our own flesh that we fight against. No, we battle against the devil himself. The hatred that university students face in the classroom, that employees run into on the job site, the hatred that just seems to grow and grow in the media, it's not going away anytime soon. But this battle can also be quiet and subtle, one that takes place in our hearts, vying for our attention. But just like the Lord did with Israel in our text, so he promised all the way back in Genesis 3 to completely blot out the memory of our greatest adversary. The seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. In fact, as as we sit here today, the second Joshua has already come. We know him by his Greek name, Jesus. This Joshua has already delivered the fatal blow at the empty tomb. And in 1 John 3, it says that the reason that the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Through his own death, he destroyed the one who is death. So like the Israelites, this is a promise that we can hold on to, that we can remind each other of. That's what Paul did at the end of his letter to the Romans. He says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. What hope we can receive from this. And yet, while Jesus' death and resurrection were enough to land that fatal blow, enough to deliver everyone from the devil's power, we also know that many people on that final day will not be welcomed by the Father. Not even all of those who during their lives said, Lord, Lord, not all of them will enter into the kingdom of heaven. No, only the one who does the will of the Father, only the one who dies to their old nature and comes to life in the new, the one who grieves over his sins and repents before the Lord, the one who joyfully begins to live according to the will of God. And perhaps that causes fear in your heart because you know how often you fall. There is fear because sometimes you give in to those attacks. And you wonder if there will be a time when you don't get back up again. We're all there. We all fall. But here's where it's so important to see that the entire battle belongs to the Lord. Not one swing of the sword is done in our own strength. There's not one skirmish that we have to duke out on our own. Because the reality is, we're just as helpless as those ex-slaves wandering through the desert. This battle to turn our hearts into flesh, to repent before God, to die to our old nature, this is also a battle won from the hilltop. So like when we, like Moses, humble ourselves in prayer, even when we in weakness can no longer stand, then we can look to the hilltop where a perfect mediator intercedes on our behalf. This is our banner. It's the Lord. In the daily battle that's fought over our hearts, there's a banner hoisted high on the hilltop, visible to all, 
a banner that tells us that the Lord is our salvation, that the battle belongs to him. Moses knew that too. The banner wasn't Moses standing there with the staff. It was the Lord. Moses further explains himself in verse 16. And we should understand here that Moses is referring to the Amalekite hands lifted up against the throne of the Lord. And it's for this reason that the Lord wars against the Amalekites and our adversaries from generation to generation. This is his battle. At times he'll involve us, just like he did with the Israelites here at Rephidim. Joshua had to choose men to fight. So God also involves us in these daily battles to strengthen us, to purify us, to cause us to rely on him. There's a purpose for our fighting, but the battle belongs to him. And in the midst of war, that can be easy to forget. When we're fighting way down in the valley, it may seem that the Lord is simply watching. We feel ourselves beaten back, our every weakness exploited. We grow tired and weary. But look to the hilltop. The Lord is our banner. Christ Jesus is sitting there at the right hand of the Lord on our behalf. The battle isn't ours, but the Lord's. In this, we may find strength and confidence and joy. Being beaten back and under great pressure has a whole different feel when we know that the devil's destruction is never in doubt. God's promise is sure. We're called to fight and are being strengthened through it all, but this battle belongs to the Lord. And then finally, one day, Jesus will come again. The very memory of the devil will be completely blotted out from under heaven. The Lord at last will bring us into that promised land. We will be his people and God himself will be with us and be our God. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things will have passed away. The one who makes all things new will say, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He who overcomes will inherit all of this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Amen.